We are ready to begin this morning. Okay, we have a lot of information to cover, so I'm going to try and go through um, fairly quickly to uh, leave some time for discussion at the end. But this is the Evolution Forum, Monkeys, Moths, and Molecules, Defending the Truth in the Creation-Evolution Debate. Uh, before we start, I'd just like to, I guess, give my, uh, my credentials for this, uh, for this forum. I'm not a scientist. I didn't study the hard sciences in college. My um, undergraduate degree was Science, Technology, and Society, which seems kind of... Uh, kind of vague, but what we did was we explored technical and scientific issues in terms of how they would affect society and how society affects science and technology. And um, that, um, that area of study, I think, has prepared me fairly well for a topic like this. Evolution is very much a scientific theory, but it's also a cultural issue. And so we'll be, uh, we'll be exploring that this morning. To begin, we have um, a clip that I think frames the issue very well in terms of evolution as a science and also evolution as an overarching worldview. And so we will start with the clip and then go through some PowerPoint slides. I think American schools teach too little about evolution. A lot of the information regarding evolution is taught uncritically. I don't think this is good science education for the students in that district, and apparently neither did his colleagues nor his superintendent. Our job is to teach the adopted curriculum, and that's what we follow. The controversy is about whether a science teacher can actually give students evidence that's critical of Darwin's theory of evolution. We want them to learn a religiously inspired critique of science based on faulty interpretations and non-existent facts. That the separation of church and state could crumble under mountain pressure from those who I could not verbally share any of this information with my students. The role of a high school teacher is not to be on the cutting edge of research. I have never seen such intolerance in a political issue. The icons of evolution, these are examples uh, of textbook evidences that actually distort the scientific evidence. The controversy in modern times is not between science and religion, it's between two different interpretations of the same scientific evidence. Scientists are supposed to question things. Scientists are supposed to be open to new evidence. I mean, I'm a scientist. I don't know any evidence against evolution. That's okay for a PBS special, but that's not the real world. That's not what's taking place. They won't allow a debate to go on. They try to stop it. And the reason they try to stop it is they don't think they can win it. Burlington, Washington, a quiet, peaceful community about an hour north of Seattle, an unlikely setting for a battleground, but that's exactly what it has become. On a recent night, hundreds of parents, teachers, and students gathered at the local high school because of biology teacher Roger DeHart. Already, I'm being chastised or criticized that somehow my students can't understand for 15 years, DeHart has been a popular teacher at Burlington High School. Now, he's under fire for his teaching of evolution. Based on Darwinian evolution, or based on evolution, we would say that which ones would be the fittest? I think it's Im very important for students to understand evolution. I think it's important that uh, I teach students uh, evolution and that they understand it so that they'll be successful in universities if they choose to go on. Well, I love biology. I, uh, the thing that intrigues me was just the different habitats and ecosystems and things like that. I was intrigued by that. I love being out there. And so I had a real love for biology. The more I learn about the complexity of life, genetics and the human genome and uh, 
the idea of this uh, information in the cell. I think it's fascinating. What is the mechanism? But the heart's passion for biology is tempered by frustration. Frustration that students aren't learning enough about evolution. According to the heart, teachers and textbooks are not presenting an accurate representation of evolutionary theory. Either some of the current leading research is being left out, so it's dated, or else it's just plain misrepresented. Because of his desire for students to learn accurate science, DeHart decided to supplement the standard unit on evolution with additional materials. Then someone complained. A citizens group was organized. Groups from outside the community began to lobby the school district, and the dispute became an issue in school board elections. The controversy polarized Burlington. Most widely discussed trial of the 20s, the Darwin case, July 24, 1925. Of course, this is not the first time evolution has divided a community. Back in the 1920s, Dayton, Tennessee prosecuted high school teacher John Scopes for teaching evolution to students in violation of state law. Remember today as a classic battle pitting religious fundamentalists against defenders of science and academic freedom. The Scopes trial continues to affect how we view the controversy over evolution in the schools according to defense attorneys, was the right to teach what science had found factual. But there is one important and unexpected difference between John Scopes and Roger DeHart. Scopes was a proponent of evolution. DeHart is not. And those who are trying to censor him from teaching too much about evolution are not religious fundamentalists. They are supporters of Darwin's theory. I think American schools teach too little about evolution. I think that a lot of the information regarding evolution is taught uncritically. Does natural selection provide you with more information? They're not asking students to really examine the evidence given and to ask whether or not that's a plausible explanation. It's more or less regurgitate the facts, regurgitate what we've told you. And don't question, because if you question, that means that you must have a religious belief and uh, that must motivate your objections to, to evolution rather than the science. Caught in the middle of that clash and the shouting match... DeHart's situation caught the awareness of the national press, setting off a frenzy of media attention. The ACLU disagreed and filed a complaint with the school. ...separation of church and state could crumble under mounting pressure from those who want creationism taught as science. In the local newspaper, opponents of DeHart took out a full-page ad and filled the pages with angry letters to the editor. Fanatics like DeHart and his cohorts will never be satisfied. The issue is whether students receive the education they're legally entitled to, free of contamination by the religious agenda of DeHart. Mr. DeHart stands exposed as the fox in the hen house from which he should be ejected. When parents discovered that their children, in their view, were not being taught science, but rather we're being taught basically incorrect facts and wrong science on the basis of what they thought was Mr. DeHart's religious motivation. They had every reason to petition their Board of Education for the redress of that grievance. Contrary to state law, Darwin's theory of evolution. When the Scopes trial took place in 1925, you had a large part of the country where school boards would not allow Darwinian evolution to be taught. I think that's hardly true anywhere, and certainly nobody wants that to be true today. What you have is the Scopes trial turned on its head now, because you've got people who say uh, in school boards, you can't teach any criticism of Darwin. Often all we hear about are the creationists who are trying to stop teachers from teaching evolution. But that really is an outdated stereotype. If it ever was accurate, it certainly isn't any longer. The sort of teachers now not allowed to teach science are teachers like Roger DeHart who are being told that they can't criticize Darwin in the classroom. The Roger DeHart controversy is just typical of many in the country. What he's trying to do is show that there are serious growing uh, concerns among scientists about Darwinian evolution. 
the controversy in modern times is not between science and religion, it's between two different interpretations of the same scientific evidence. It's not science versus religion, it's science versus science. There's no controversy among scientists over whether evolution took place. I don't know anybody who argues against whether evolution took place, except for those who have religious reasons for it. Anytime anyone criticizes Darwin's theory of evolution, evolutionists immediately cry, it's about religion. Well, the claim that all skeptics about Darwinian uh, orthodoxy or Christian fundamentalist stands refuted by me. It's obviously not true. I'm not, neither Christian nor a fundamentalist. Um, but lots and lots of people are skeptical in the scientific community. I became skeptical of Darwinian evolution early on, outside of any religious influence, just because of the complexity that I was learning about in the cell, and we use the word elegant in um, genetics. So I removed myself. In part, evolution was a powerful explanatory mechanism, but it seemed insufficient. School officials informed Dehart that any supplemental materials he wanted to assign, even articles from mainstream science publications, now had to be submitted for approval. I know of no other teacher who actually submitted articles to the principal for review uh, up until my controversy. According to Dehart, his principal rejected all his requests and he was forbidden from using any outside materials that might be critical of evolution. They went from not allowing me to introduce any supplemental materials then to telling me that I could not verbally share any of this information with my students. The fact of the matter is, every other teacher in Burlington's school district was allowed to assign supplementary materials whenever they want. But when Roger DeHart decided to assign a few articles from mainstream science journals, they censored him. Okay, so as we uh, see from that clip, it's a fairly contentious issue. Before we go uh, into some of the, the details, I think it's good to talk about the terminology so we have a, a good understanding of what exactly is being discussed. Darwinism, evolution, macroevolution, they're all pretty much the same thing. You can use the terms interchangeably. Basically, the concept is organisms through genetic mutations have gone from simple to more complex. Microevolution is basically adaptation. And so take the example of dogs. There are chihuahuas and German shepherds and lots of different breeds. They all adapted, but they're all still dogs. Macroevolution would be dogs you know, sprouting wings or you know, somehow evolving into something different. So they are, are two very different concepts, evolution versus microevolution. And one of the, the issues we'll see is that the terms are not, are not clarified. And so scientists will talk about evolution as both microevolution and macroevolution, and thereby kind of justify some of their claims without really having a firm basis for it. Uh, for this discussion, evolution will be referred to as like macroevolution, the species turning into different, more complex species. In terms of the icons of evolution, these are certain examples that are um, in most high school and most college textbooks, probably things we're all familiar with in terms of the uh, the scientific explanations for evolution. The problem with these icons is that they've either been scientifically disproven or they've been exposed as um, fraudulent. First example, the peppered moth. Basically, um, during the Industrial Revolution, uh, soot from the different factories attached to the tree trunks and turned them darker. And so uh, scientists observed that in the beginning, there were more black moths, I'm sorry, there were more white moths because they uh, they blended in with the trees. Once the trees were darkened by the ash, the um, white moth was more apparent, and so the population decreased. And basically what scientists said was, this is natural selection at work. The um, black moths were, were better suited or more fit to survive. Problem with the, um, this example is that the peppered moth is not actually attached to tree trunks in that way. They were um, basically glued by the scientists glued onto the trees by the scientists. And um, the moths spend more time on leaves than on branches. And so the, the science of that is questionable in terms of um, how that's an example of, uh, of evolution. In terms of Heckel's embryos, this was done um, quite a while ago. 
The idea is that since we all originated from a common ancestor, then we should all look fairly similar in our early stages of, um, of development. So a man by the name of Heckel produced these drawings. And on the left, you can see that um, basically fish, turtles, chickens, humans, we all look pretty much the same at early stages of development. The problem with this example is that he basically created the drawings to not really based on anything scientific or anything accurate. The second image shows um, in the middle in the box what the different organisms actually look like at the beginning stages of development. And you can see the, the fish, the frog, the turtle, the chicken, and the person all look very different at the beginning stages. And so this is not evidence of any sort of um, common ancestor that we share. In terms of Darwin's finches, another fairly common example, uh, if you look at the, the finches on the left, they have large beaks, and those beaks are used for crushing seed pods so they can eat the seeds and eat, um, eat other things like that. The theory behind this was um, in times of drought, only the finches with larger beaks would survive because they could get through the harder seed pods and get to their food source. Um, unfortunately, the, the uh, beak size in times of rain, when it was no longer dry, when there was an abundant food source, it was found that the, um, the average beak size got smaller again. And so instead of the theory that you know, only the birds with larger beaks survived and then you know, were, were moving on evolutionarily, once the rains returned, the beak sizes came back to normal. And basically all we see is just the changing of a beak size within the species. So again, it's adaptation, but it's not evolution in terms of going from something simple to something more complex. Again, the four-winged fruit fly, this mutation in some flies gives them four wings. That is supposed to say that evolutionarily they are improving. They've got four wings instead of two. It's a great advancement based on a mutation. Problem is the second pair of wings don't have muscles and therefore are actually a hindrance to the fly instead of an improvement. And uh, the flies with four wings often do not survive very long. Uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria, same concept. Some, because of mutations, are not affected by antibiotics. And so the theory as well, that means they, they're more, um, more advanced and they can survive. The problem is those mutations also cause them to be less competitive. And so though they are not um, affected by the antibiotics, they are not as competitive as the non-antibiotic resistant bacteria, and so they don't survive as long. Finally, uh, homology in the tree of life. On the right, we can see that all of the organisms we have came from this one central common ancestor. And the idea is, if you look at the bone structure, it's, it looks similar. There is a, a familiar layout to the different bones of the bat, the whale, and the horse leg, and the human, uh, the human arm. Problem with, um, with this theory is that now that they've um, discovered some genetic advances, a lot of the body parts in the different organisms that, are, um, that look familiar have different genetic origins. And what that means is if the uh, theory of evolution were true in that you know, arms that look familiar all came from similar genes, um, the reality is different genes are creating organism structures that look familiar. So in other words, uh, if we look at the bottom picture there, we have a fly and a wasp, and their abdomens look similar, but they have um, their origin in different types of genes. And so again, we're seeing that it's not so much the, just the appearance of these structures, but the, the genes that show us that there is not some sort of common ancestor for them. Finally, the fossil record. We know that um, the theory is fossils go from more um, simple to more complex. Problem is something called the Cambrian explosion. And if you look on the, the geologic time scale there, Cambrian age is pretty far down. We are up in the, uh, the quaternary period on the top. At that time period, there was what, what scientists call this explosion. And basically, in a very short amount of time, a large number of fossils are found of very different organisms. So instead of having just some simple organisms that grow into more complex over all the periods, 
basically in that one time, the organisms are showing already in their full form. And also, uh, there are no transitional fossils, which means, you know, for evolution to occur, reptiles should be turning into birds, uh, things of that nature. There have been no fossils found yet that show any sort of species that is going from one type to another. So that is just a quick overview, not so quick, but an overview of the, the scientific information that is used to defend evolution. And we see from the quote here, scientists are very defensive of Darwinism. And the reason is not necessarily the uh, scientific evidence for it, but just the, um, the issue of ignoring God at all costs. Scientists do not want to to even have a notion of God or a higher being, they would prefer to, uh, to stay with their science. And we'll get into more of that uh, towards the end. Now, evolution is worldview. Uh, the Darwinian revolution was not merely the replacement of one scientific theory by another, but rather the replacement of a worldview in which the supernatural was accepted as a normal and relevant explanatory principle by a new worldview in which there was no room for supernatural forces. So essentially, taking evolution from the science realm into the issue of worldview, or it, or it affects everything, basically removed God from, from modern thought. And uh, just as an example of how it's no longer just an issue of science, there are um, numerous disciplines where evolutionary theories are presented. And here's just a, a quick example of some of them. Government, we have Darwinian politics, the evolutionary origin of freedom. Economics, economics as an evolutionary science. Law, we have evolutionary jurisprudence. Education, origins of genius, Darwinian perspectives on creativity. Health, we have why we get sick, the new science of Darwinian medicine. Child development, the truth about Cinderella, a Darwinian view of parental love. And even business, executive instinct, managing the human animal in the information age. So, Darwin, evolution, it's no longer just a scientific issue, it's really in every academic discipline, essentially. And also in terms of Darwin's influence, uh, we see that it's really affecting major institutions of our culture, and uh, those institutions are theology, law, philosophy, and education. It's based um, kind of in conjunction with a philosophy called pragmatism, which is basically postmodernism, and um, we'll see the effects of that. In terms of Darwin and the pragmatist effect on theology, basically it's God and the world are constantly evolving. For law, there is no divine source of law or unchanging source of law. Law just evolves as a, a product of our culture. One example of this, the uh, Roe versus Wade decision to legalize abortion. This decision was not so much based on what the law said, but on what the social outcomes would be. I have a quote from uh, Justice Harry Blackman. He was saying, abortion must be considered in relation to population growth, pollution, poverty, and racial issues. And so the, the Supreme Court and these judges were using law basically to accomplish a social agenda, and it's a very different um, theory or philosophy of law from you know, what God has ordained and what, what is unchanging. Basic philosophy, truth is made, not found. And uh, that is very much against what the, uh, the Christian worldview is of truth is absolute, truth is unchanging. Education, we have um, learning is a form of mental evolution. A good quote here, an outside objective reality is not revealed to the learners. The learners actively construct their own reality. And this is um, an education theory known as constructivism. Basically, it, it is what is shown here that there is no truth, there is nothing that is absolute. And so the, the teachers are no longer instructing their students, but they're just facilitating them as they really come to their own conclusions and come to their own truth. Now, 
Now, the implications of the Darwinian worldview. We have, since evolution is a scientific theory, there's a, a scientific justification then for immorality. And um, essentially, Darwinism reduces immorality to basically the behaviors of humans that have evolved over time and the, the best behaviors are still here. And so morality is not based on the Bible or on anything absolute. It's based on whatever randomly happened. And we have some examples. Uh, there are scientific justifications for rape. The uh, natural history of rape, biological basis of sexual coercion. Basically, they're saying that um, rape is something that uh, it's an evolutionary adaptation to maximize reproductive success. Uh, infanticide, nature's baby killers. These are all titles of either books or journal articles or um, modern publications. Um, it's a normal parental instinct to, uh, under certain situations, kill your baby. So if the baby perhaps is not healthy or if you have other babies to tend to, uh, they basically make a comparison to cats. If there's a litter of kittens, maybe the runt, it's not going to be that healthy, just push it to the side. They um, make the same assertion for, for humans. Uh, even bestiality is apparently not so much of an issue anymore, um, scientifically speaking. In an article entitled Heavy Petting, we, uh, we see that since we're all animals, sex across the species barrier is no longer, uh, no longer a problem. And uh, it's, it's a fairly... Uh, Really interesting concept that you know even even something as as uh, as heinous as bestiality, there is a scientific justification for it. We're all animals. What's the difference really? And then finally, Bill Clinton. He um, <laughs> back during his marital issues in the White House, they um, kind of had an evolutionary explanation for that as well. He um, they uh, use an or an example of Canadian geese versus walruses. Canadian geese, they mate for life. Walruses, they um, essentially form sort of a harem. There's one male walrus and a lot of female walruses that he, uh, he is with. And so basically, rather than saying, you know, Bill shouldn't have been cheating on his wife, the argument was made that, you know, perhaps our ancestors were more like walruses and not like geese. And so, Marital fidelity is not really an adaptation that we are uh, evolving into. And also we have uh, just a proliferation of ridiculous theories. And um, I'll read some quotes here. First is by George Greenstein, an astronomer. The cosmos does not exist unless observed. Thus the universe brought forth life in order to exist. And the second is by George Wald. He is a, a Nobel Prize winning biologist, and that is the universe wants to be known. And both of these quotes are part of a theory called the conscious cosmos. And basically what they're saying is the universe can't really exist without being observed. And so since the universe wanted to be observed, it somehow, through evolution, had non-living matter turned into living matter, which turned into humans that had brains that could observe the universe and therefore give the universe meaning. And this is a very interesting theory. Uh, like I said, it's ridiculous and interesting that scientists will come to conclusions like this, but still claim that you know, the Christian worldview is just you know, religious fanatics and it doesn't make sense, it's not logical. We move on. Second implication of Darwinian science as a worldview, basically that Christianity, God, morality, absolute truth, absolute anything is dismissed. A quote by Shermer, who is the director of the Skeptic Society and a publisher of Skeptic Magazine, which is basically a, a publication that will um, uh, take on Christianity and anything objective and try and uh, tear it down. In my senior year of high school, I accepted Jesus as my savior and became a born-again Christian. I underwent a deconversion in graduate school when I studied evolutionary biology. I think it's very interesting terminology he used there of a deconversion. And uh, very often that is what 
what happens. People will have a, a religious experience when they're younger and then are met with scientific, um, scientific explanations for origins of life and for evolution. And there's a, a conflict, and very often they choose the science over the, um, the religious experience that they had. Um, same with Stalin. They are fooling us. There is no God. This is when he was um, studying in the seminary to be part of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church. And this quote came after he read um, Darwin's writings. And so uh, we see that someone like Stalin, who went to great lengths to create a, um, an atheistic state, his origins for, um, I guess, much of his madness and much of his, uh, much of his destruction was evolution and just the concept that, you know, God doesn't exist, we evolved, there is no absolute truth or absolute morality. Uh, Dennett, who is um, an author quoted on the PBS series Evolution, said that evolution is purposeless, meaningless matter in motion. And again, that just reinforces this concept that, you know, there is no truth, there is nothing that's right or wrong, it's pretty much meaningless. And so we just evolve and whatever feels right, whatever works, that is our morality. And finally, Edward Purcell, who was a historian. Uh, because of Darwinism, theological dogmas and philosophical absolutes are at worst totally fraudulent and at best merely symbolic of deep human aspirations. So religion, anything about truth, about absolutes, it's just something to make us feel good. And finally, nature is all that is or was or ever will be. Nature is you, nature is me. This is um, a quote from Berenstein Bears. It's from their nature guide. And uh, I think it's a very good example of, you know, if, if these ideas of evolution and that nature, things that are physical are all that exist and that God doesn't exist, if this is showing up in children's literature, then it's a pretty pervasive worldview. If it's not just, you know, in higher spheres of learning in universities or colleges, but it's going all the way down to kindergarten, this is, um, this is really affecting all parts of our culture. And it's just interesting that um, you know, rather than God, who is and was and ever will be, it's, it's nature that is or was or ever will be. So since we see that there, there is this body of scientific information and even this, this philosophy and this worldview that is really um, promoting evolution as, as, as the truth. Uh, you know, what are we to do as Christians? We have this worldview based on absolute truth, based on God, based on the supernatural. And uh, the first is uh, intelligent design. And this is a concept that we will take scientific information and we see that based on the complexity of all of it, there has to be some sort of intelligent agent that was at work here. And again, I, I want to stress that you know, if we do have these debates with people, it's not necessarily you know, of God versus religion. I'm sorry, of God versus science. It's science versus science. We, as Christians, should believe that you know, science is showing us what God has done. So science has every place in religion if we are using science to defend what we, what we believe and not to be torn down by it. And that there's something called uh, the divine foot in the door. And I uh, touched on this earlier. Basically, it says that you know, scientists that have this evolutionary worldview and social scientists and philosophers and anyone that has this worldview, one of the main reasons that they will not accept intelligent design is that intelligent design leads you to think that there is God or something higher, which leads to a Christian worldview. And that's really something that, that they cannot accept because they are, they are fully entrenched in their worldview that has no existence of a God. Next, we have irreducibly complex systems. Uh, you can see from the uh, diagram of the mousetrap, this is basically a concept that there are certain certain mechanisms that have um, numerous working parts, and um, each of those parts needs to be present for the mechanism to function. So we have an example of the mousetrap. Um, if all of those pieces are not in place in the right order, the mousetrap is not going to work. And that is um, also seen in 
um, biology. This is a, a close-up on the right of the um, flagella of a bacteria. And the flagella is basically like a, a tail-like structure you can see on the top picture that um, moves the bacteria around. And if you look closely at it, it is a very complex mechanism. There are, I believe, over 14 different protein components that are, are used to build this machine. It can revolve at um, 100,000 revolutions per minute, and it resembles a motor designed by a human. And um, this here is first an example of intelligent design, because it looks like it has been designed and uh, could not have just evolved randomly into place. In terms of its irreducible complexity, if we go back to Darwinism and think that you know, these mutations over time produce changes that are beneficial for the animal, there's a major problem with irreducibly complex systems because all of those pieces need to be in place. If um, you know, all but one of those elements was not there, the flagella wouldn't function, and so the organism would not be fit and would not survive. And so that goes uh, directly against Darwin's slow, random uh, mutations that change the organism. This has to be intact for it to work and for the organism to survive. And finally, we have the issue of information and information theory. And this is uh, very much, I think, the new, new chapter in the creationism debate. As we map the human genome and learn more about DNA and um, genetic issues, we see that there is a great deal of information at the molecular level. And um, for information to be useful, it must be created by some sort of intelligent sender. So there must be someone that creates the message and then relays it to someone else that interprets the message and uses that message. If we look at um, chance, law, and specified complexity, these are, are different parts of information theory. For chance, it's an example of taking some Scrabble letters and dropping them on the floor. You know, maybe some of them will will form some words by chance. Maybe I and T would fall next to each other and you have it. So by chance, this word formed. The problem with, um, with chance, it only accounts for simple order. And so you're not going to have a whole sentence fall into place that makes any sense. Um, in terms of law, it only describes regular patterns. So A plus B equals C, or you know, other, other patterns that are constant. Specified complexity. The pattern is specified in advance. There is some higher agent that is creating the message and then sending it. Now, the way we can apply this to, to biology and to science is if you look at the diagram, there are the different components of DNA. It's basically uh, a biochemical alphabet. And the different arrangement of the letters in our genes is what create the different observable characteristics in us. So, brown hair, body height, different things are all based on the specific order of those, um, of those letters in our genes. And those letters cannot have happened by chance, because again, chance only accounts for simple order. Genetic um, information is very complex and very large, and so chance does not account for it. Uh, in terms of law, again, it only describes regular patterns, and the pattern of our genetic code is not regular. It's specific for each one of us. And so we really have nothing left but specified complexity, which means you know, there is something specific and unique in our genetic code, and that is being um, presented in our genes at the molecular level. And so basically, this information cannot just have evolved. It can't just come from random changes and slowly over time. There is something higher than just the natural matter that we see that is putting these, um, these letters in order. Another thing that we can do is asserting Christianity as a valid worldview. And uh, first thing, exposing Darwinism as a religion. Very often, we even saw in the clips, you know, the teaching creationism or teaching intelligent design 
is violating the separation of church and state. And that, you know, we can't have religion in our public schools. The uh, problem is Darwinism is as much a religion as Christianity is. Um, evolution came into being as an explicit substitute for Christianity, a secular religion with meaning and morality. And so basically, just like any other religion, Darwin, Darwinism and evolution, it explains our origins, it explains how we got here, it explains why we do things, and it explains our future. That we'll just continue to evolve and you know, we'll determine what's best for us and what morality we should have as we go along. And it might not be a very um, optimistic religion, but it's a religion nonetheless. And so we, I think, need to be clear on that is, you know, there's as much science in Christianity that we can use to defend our point, and there is a lot of religion in evolution and Darwinism. Also, maintaining a separation between evolution and creation. There are um, some theories out there that God did create the world and created organisms and everything we see, but that he used like, evolutionary mechanisms to do that. Uh, the problem with this is I don't believe that you know, God, our intelligent creator and our designer, just chose millions of years of random mutations to create us and to create all that we see around us. Um, you know, I mean, God, when he created creation, it was very good. I mean, it was complete, it was designed, it was complex, and it was beautiful. It wasn't something that, you know, just through chance, just kind of fell into place and happened for the best. And also defending the logic of the Christian worldview. For, um, for hundreds of years um, after the scientific revolution, scientists viewed their, their, uh, act, their scientific activity as something that was really glorifying God or explaining what God had done. And um, that's something that we need to, I think, revive in Christianity, I guess, not even in, in our circle, but just as a religion worldwide. Christianity needs to play more of a role in the scientific sphere again. We have this separation of science being truth and religion being value, and so, you know, values are objective and can change. That's not the case, and that we need to combine the two again, that, you know, science is showing the truth of God, and that we should reclaim that as something that will, will defend the Christian worldview and not tear it down. Also, um, on that vein, if we are talking to scientists or professors in college or people at work, or whatever the case is, if they are focused on the science or the philosophical logic of evolution, our personal testimony of how we came to know Christ, though very important, is not necessarily going to affect them yet. If they are in an intellectual sphere, we need to attack them at that intellectual sphere. And once we show that you know, Christianity is just as logical, is just as valid as other philosophies or other sciences, then once they realize, okay, what we're believing is valid, then we can go into our personal testimony. But, you know, saying what, what Christ did for me to a professor who is completely entrenched in evolution might not be the first step for that. We really need to, to be educated ourselves to take them on at their level and then go to the spiritual. And finally, um, participate in the education of our children and also the education of ourselves. Uh, we should be aware of the curriculum that is being taught at all levels of education. So we know that evolution will be coming up in high schools and colleges, but as we saw from the Berenstein Bears, it's also in, all the way down into kindergarten. And so at every level of our education and the education of our children, we really should be teaching them to see what is scientific fact and what is scientific information being distorted to prove the Darwinian worldview. And also we need to really have them be able to defend Christianity as a worldview, not just as you know, their belief system or what they think is true, but something that is objective and, and valid. Also, we can do that by incorporating evolution and worldview issues into our VBS or our Sunday school classes or youth group meetings or 
just in, in some way, really having that be a component of what we are teaching. And um, for parents, talking to teachers, talking to school boards if necessary. Um, as we saw from the clip, there are uh, some very polarized camps on creationism and intelligent design versus evolution. But, I mean, as we've seen today, there is science to what we are saying. It's not just we want religion taught in schools. Darwinism is taught without criticism, and yet Darwinism itself is a religion. So we, we should be prepared to talk to the people that um, do have influence over the education system. In terms of some references, much of what I um, have presented today has come from the book entitled Total Truth. It's by Nancy Piercy. It's done a very good job of taking many different sources and compiling it into one, one book that goes through um, really all parts of our culture. Another good book is Icons of Evolution and Darwin's Black Box. Uh, there were two DVDs, one of which I played this morning, and um, some websites here as well that um, present scientific facts for Christianity and also just some of that worldview curriculum that we were talking about. And then also, even if you're not involved in home educating your children, the home education websites have a lot of information on Darwinism, Christianity, and worldviews. And so again, even if you're not necessarily teaching your kids at home, they have um, lectures you can go to, textbooks that you can order, lesson plans, lots of different things that really clarify what we've talked about here today. And that was a lot of information, and I left some time for questions, if you have any. I know it was uh, a lot to process, and uh, if you want, I can go back and clarify some things, or we can go deeper into some issues, or anything. Yes? Yeah, I have a couple of comments. Mm -hmm. uh, first, by Darwin's own admission, he said that the cell is more than a cytoplasm and a nucleus, then my theory wouldn't hold. Right. And as you know, the cell is an unbelievably intricate world of DNA, RNA, ribosome, mitochondria, something extremely complex. And number two, a number of astrophysicists have calculated, they said, okay, we'll go along with you. Evolution is, is the answer. Um, it takes trillions of years for these things to happen. Mm -hmm. And by scientific admission, that's true or not, besides the point, it's the world, the universe about 15 to 17 billion years old. So it, statistically, it couldn't have happened either that way. Just go back to the previous slide while we're asking questions. Oh, sure. Thanks. And again, the, um, this information will be available, I think, through the, the um, CDs that they sell at the end of the week. We'll have the, hopefully have the PowerPoint available as part of that. Yes? On the very uh, subtle issue of children's books and the idea of evolution, I think it's really good at those times for parents to point out the differences in what we believe and how we see things different and sensitize children at an early age about how you know, the world sees things and what the Bible says about creation and about the differences between the species and so on. That if they're teaching it subtly at those young ages, they're doing it for a purpose. Or if there's not a purpose behind it, certainly Satan is using it for that purpose. And we need to be aware of that and take appropriate steps in terms of helping our children recognize what's being said there. That is a difficult balance as well, just in terms of, you know, we want our children to listen to their teachers, but at the same time, their teacher isn't always telling them the truth. And so we do need to participate when our kids get home as, you know, what did you talk about today? And maybe that's not so true as it was presented. Many of us have had to learn things in higher education that we didn't agree with. But the idea being is that you understand where the other side is, so you can, if not defend against it, you can better uh, articulate your own views because of what you understand about that system. And so uh, I often have the right about things that I didn't really care for or believe in, but I knew where I stood spiritually and wasn't going to be deconverted by somebody or some theory that was, you know, here today and 20 years from now could be gone, and many disciplines are full of those sorts of things. When we can't pull our kids out of public school and we can't not go to college. I mean, we, we have plenty of 
scientific and philosophical and moral justifications for what we believe in. All right, any last questions? Yes, there's a comment I'd like to share. A friend of mine lived in an area for a while away from church and worked with a gentleman very close to him in his office. And one of the bottom line questions he asked him at the end of the day, and he was really into the theory of evolution, he just asked him, what is evolution? as even they say, it's a purposeless, meaningless, just going on and on and on. I mean, everybody knows they have to die. So what's, what is it really doing for you personally? Right. You can believe in it, but now tell me, what does it do for you? That's a very good, a very good approach is, you know, with whatever belief someone has you don't agree with, have them take it to the logical conclusion. You know, if evolution is just meaningless and random, and all we believe in is just, you know, not based on truth, but what perhaps is the most convenient. What does that say about Darwinism? If there is no truth, then well, evolutionary theory and Darwinism we can't believe is true either. And yet it's upheld as the only belief that, you know, modern intellectual people should have. So take it to that logical conclusion is, you know, it, it's self it's self-contradictory. If there's no truth, then well, Darwinism can't be true either. someone who was steeped in Darwinism made a presentation to a young boy's school, in England actually it was, and he thought he had done a tremendously good job and when he asked for questions, he started out of course, there, there was this creature that crawled out of the water, he was trying to make it understand, put it on the young people's level, and the first question uh, put an end to all of it. A lad raised his hand and he said, you didn't say where the water came from. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's very true. <laughs> I mean, at every level, it's just not logical that, you know, non-living matter turned into something that could, you know, reproduce and live and then eventually became something as complex as humans. It just is not logical. Okay, if there are no more comments, I think uh, we can conclude. Thank you all for, for coming. <laughs>